Welcome to today's podcast, Compliance Considerations in the Wake of the College Admission Scandal. The culmination of a federal investigation into alleged widespread college admissions fraud, dubbed Operation Varsity Blues, led to charges against wealthy parents, college coaches, and the administrators accused of bribery, fraud, money laundering, and obstruction of justice in the course of securing spots for incoming college students at prestigious institutions across the United States. While news of the investigation and ensuing arrests have sparked conversations about the college admissions process, the role of athletics, reputational challenges, and questions of economic inequality, organizations may also have an interest in reviewing some of their internal processes and practices. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Stephen Lassonde, former Dean of Student Life and Lecturer on History at Harvard University, and now Director of the Office of Prestigious Scholarships and Fellowships at Hunter College and Tom McWeeny, Chief Operating Officer at Integrity Risk International, to discuss some key points for institutions of higher learning as well as other organizations to consider going forward. Steve, let me start with you um, Mm -hmm. and drawing upon your experience at uh, Brown and Harvard, now the City University of New York. Uh, This is obviously an investigation, a scandal that has attracted a great deal of attention, uh, both in terms of the media, regulators, law enforcement officials, college administrators, et cetera. And we feel as though we're more at the beginning than at the end. And maybe you could give us an overview of your sense of the issues here, the current thinking, how schools are thinking about these issues and why they matter. So, actually, my longest experience is at Yale. I should mention that since they're involved in one of these cases. So I just want to say that at the outset. You know, why it matters is because, as many people have pointed out, you know, meritocracy is one of the chief characteristics or values of that universities offer. It allows many people to find uh, socioeconomically to improve their families' incomes over time and over generations. So it's been a central driver of upward mobility in the United States. So it matters at that level. It also matters because people in universities place a lot of importance on telling the truth and discovering the truth. It's the mission of the university to do so, and that's why tenure was created. So there's a lot at stake here for universities. And that's what makes this especially tragic because admissions officers, university presidents, and so on, understand that having a fair admissions process is really the coin of the realm. Their reputation um, in, within their industry and with the public is critical to their success. And um, a scandal like this can, you know, unravel that. Uh, so there's a lot at stake. Um, I'd say in particular, what's happened here is that um, the, the person behind this, uh, Mr. Singer, has really found the Achilles heel of the whole admissions process in selective universities that don't offer uh, athletic scholarships. Um, when, when there are no athletic scholarships and financial aid, financial support is given in, in, for all students just in the way of, of regular scholarships, depending on, you know, they're not attached to whether or not they play on an athletic team. Um, what happens is that, on the one hand, you get good financial aid for everyone in, in a level playing field, but there, what's happening here is that 
Um, you can have one bad apple in a coach on, on one of your teams, and they can um, bring down the entire system, as we've seen here, or, or threaten to by damaging the university's reputation. So um, in this case, what's happened is that um, athletic directors have a lot of power uh, in, the, in the whole admissions process for any Ivy League university. So um, if you think about in most Ivy League colleges, something between 15 and 20 percent of the student body are varsity athletes of some kind. Um, it's even higher for um, some of the other private colleges in New England, for instance, which I know best. So it's a good size of the student body, and there's a lot of applications to go through. Remember, since op um, the op open application um, in, in college admissions, which began about 10 years ago uh, for the for the Ivy, um, they greatly increased the number of students applying to Ivy League schools. So rather than being in the low thousands for you know, about a 1,000 spaces approximately, it went to 20,000 at most places. So they're sorting through a lot of applications, and but they hand over a part of that responsibility to athletic directors and their coaches to recruit the next class of freshman uh, varsity athletes for every sport. The other odd thing here is that the Ivy League support an enormous number of uh, uh, sports, um, I think the highest number is at Harvard, where they have 36, as I recall, Brown. When I was there, I had like 34. Um, it was, there was a time when they were, you know, cutting budgets and they wanted to get rid of a couple of teams. They didn't do that successfully. And the reason is that a lot of the alumni financial support that comes into the endowments comes from former varsity athletes who are graduates of these schools. So, what, what's happened as a result is that there's this, let's say, you know, up to 20% of the students actually being admitted in each class is given over to the athletic director, and they're the ones who are responsible for identifying players in the end who will be admitted, who are given likely letters, and are ultimately admitted in most cases. Um, and so there's not as much scrutiny uh, as there is by any, by any measure as there is for every other student applying to of the university as a freshman for the next year, as is given, um, uh, that is, the same amount of scrutiny is not given to varsity athletes by the admissions office itself. That is done by uh, coaches and athletic directors. Coaches at all these universities know the players they're, they're recruiting since they're sophomores in high school. So in theory, they should know them much, much better than the average student applies to any one of these schools as a non-athlete. Um, as a consequence, a lot of trust is placed in the coaches and in the athletic directors. On the other hand, what happens in the Ivy League, and I can't really talk about elsewhere, is that there's something called the academic index, and the whole team and the whole athletic department has to conform to the index for that sport, which is essentially the academic index says, yes, the people on this team are all within a certain range of uh, numbers and grade point average averages in their high schools when they were admitted to our program. So it allows them some latitude when they recruit so they can have some people who are going to be first-rate athletes in more obscure sports will be like the, the very top of their uh, their sport. But And others, uh, and, and those typically are the ones who are less academically able, but, but not always. On the other side of the spectrum, you have students who are credible athletes, and they could be 
you know, second or third string, depending on the sport, but they have very good, uh, strong academic credentials. They average together everyone on the team, as long as that number comes above a certain level, uh, they qualify to be an Ivy League school and they uh, can be recruited, as long as that overall average uh, is credible for the entire team in each given sport. What happens as a consequence is that uh, there are always going to be students who walk on to come onto campus. They're going to be um, they're supposed to be playing a sport, could be soccer, swimming, or whatever, but they quit right away. Sometimes even before they set foot on campus, um, and no one bats an eye about it because they were recruited in the first place, uh, being known as someone who probably wouldn't start, would probably get discouraged. They're not going to lose their scholarship and they quit the sport because they have whatever financial aid they have based on their family's financial need. So no one's really checking on the other end to make sure that when they leave that their credentials were, were firm in the first place. It's assumed at the beginning when they're brought to the table earlier than everyone else who's applying for that college that everything is as it should be. So it's easy for me to see how this can be faked by somebody who wants to, by someone who, especially I'm thinking in the, in the case of of Yale, a coach who had been there for many, many years and had, uh, you know, a really good record in every way, um, but then, you know, turned back because uh, he would, people would trust him to do his job and that his word was good. And so when things went wrong, um, I'm sure they were, you know, as surprised or more surprised than any of the rest of us. Stephen, so this is a, a great insight. If I can maybe summarize. Um, good luck. Okay. Obviously. <laughs> As, as the scandal unfolds and, and there's more information uh, that's coming to light, but certainly what you have highlighted is an overarching point about a, you know, basically the chain only being as strong as the weakest link. Exactly. And what, you, and what you're um, highlighting here is there is a common denominator uh, in these cases where the admissions process was in some respects delegated out by the schools to yes. the athletic departments, members of the athletic department who had a great deal of discretion. Right. And um, because of the university's efforts to balance their class and to ensure appropriate, um, I'll, I'll use the term, appropriate admissions and the ability to support various teams, which can also correlate to the contributions by alumni who are interested in those teams. Right. That um, that you know there was that opportunity for the bad apple, the corrupt actor, to take advantage and game the system. Exactly. And that and that what Mr. Singer has done allegedly is he's gamed the system by finding the weak link and understanding how to how to basically uh, how to exploit potential corruption. Right. Okay. So Tom, let me. Uh, it's an important point, and, you know, you have worked many, many uh, investigations with the FBI, and I know you're active in private practice. Um, as you've watched this unfold, and I know uh, we've been working together to track developments in, this, uh, in these cases, et cetera, what are some of the themes that you see emerging, and where do you see this investigation going? Well, thanks, David. And, and Stephen, I, I – your insights into what's happened and what happens behind the scenes in the admission process, and as David summarized with the uh, 
um, the weak link analogy um, is is something that I find interesting from the standpoint of of these these universities not having a strong compliance program in place that may be able to you know understand the the potential weak link here and and not always find it you know when you have uh, bad actors you sometimes can have somebody that does something illegal and that even though you have all of the controls and and uh, backstopping in place to try and stop that but uh what i think is is kind of come to light here is, is a lot of these uh um private universities have had a a uh outsourcing to the athletic department and not a lot of checks and balances to why these folks are being brought in. And I do understand right. why that happens because of, as you mentioned, 20%, up to 20% of the um, student body may be uh, varsity athletes that are non-scholarship athletes. And uh, that's that's a lot of folks to go through maybe an added layer of scrutiny by the admissions office. But I do think, right. you know, this will probably – have uh universities looking at their uh policies and their procedures on on student athletes and especially the non scholarship student athletes I think that's probably the uh avenue that singer really uh drove through and uh was able to uh manipulate the process there and from a a law enforcement standpoint um you know this is something that is an interesting case in the sense that, uh, you know, it did not start with the FBI looking at this corruption matter. Um, it really started with a an SEC investigation into a uh, stock manipulation, of what's called a pump and dump scheme, by an individual out in L.A. Um, that uh, when he got um, tied up in it, he admitted his his fault in in the pump and dump scheme, but to try and uh, reduce his uh, sentence, and as often happens here, uh, individuals start cooperating and provide information on other matters, and that's how the uh, law, federal law enforcement and Department of Justice got on the uh, trail of this, uh, you know, fairly wide scheme um, led by Singer as well as others um, in the. Uh, for this college scandal. But uh, I think, you know, it's a common investigative technique. Uh, you know, gain the cooperation of somebody, utilize them for information and evidence, and uh, kind of use a uh, daisy chain to uh, move your way up to the uh, leader of the uh, um, scheme, in this case being Singer. And uh, the interesting part of this is they fairly quickly got to Singer and got his cooperation, and uh, where oftentimes it takes a lot longer to get to the leader of the scheme. Um, in this case, it was a little bit different, and they were able to then utilize Singer's vast knowledge of it to really uh, work uh, to, uh, you know, round up a uh, broad swath of people that were from the uh, – parent side of this, as well as, uh, you know, facilitators in the process at the various universities that have been involved in this. Yeah. So, Tom, let me um, also, if I may, summarize some critical points for mm. our listeners. In many respects, while there's a headline and sensational quality to this investigation, and, you know, clearly um, a lot of people are following it and 
um, and such. There is also a very uh, commonplace quality to this investigation in terms of sort of how law enforcement does their job and does it on a daily basis, uh, which includes the notion of someone um, getting, I'll use the term, jammed up on um, some offense, uh, looking to mitigate their exposure, reduce their sentence, reduce their the criminal charges, and working to cooperate with authorities based on that. And mm-hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily have to be related. As you said, you know, there's a securities violation, but the uh, coin of the realm um, for people who get jammed up is oftentimes cooperation for purposes of mitigating. And uh, you have an individual who uh, now, it's a matter of public disclosure, uh, began to cooperate on something very, very different than what he was uh, under investigation for and what he, you know, where his legal exposures were. And he had information that potentially was of value. So, number one, um, to understand that the catalyst of a major investigation can be an ancillary catalyst having nothing to do. Uh, this is not a whistleblower inside a university. It's not someone who was fired and uh, filed a lawsuit. Uh, it's it's not someone who decided that uh, he or she had had enough and went to the authorities. Uh, and it's not as though an administrator was jammed up by the authorities doing the investigation. So that's number one. Number two, what we have seen thus far, and um, part of what you're relaying to our listeners, is the notion that once armed with this information, um, you know, law enforcement authorities begin to work their way uh, around it and... Uh, the first thing is obviously to try to corroborate it and corroborate this both in terms of records that you get, but to, you get additional cooperating witnesses, and then you have those cooperating witnesses at times um, record conversations, whether it's on the phone or in-person meetings. There's also the applications that are made for electronic interceptions of phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, and very much, uh, although not revealed to date, the potential to do search warrants um, and seizures of various people's um, offices, homes, and other sources uh, for records, no less. Um, bank accounts the, and the phone bank records. And, and, and to begin to review, you know, internal emails and messages um, inside universities, all of which um, the audience should just assume that, you know, Many universities have been subpoenaed for their uh, for their records and such. And uh, so, while there is a unique quality to this investigation, there's also something very I don't want to use the word pedestrian, but something that certainly mm-hmm. yields uh, pattern recognition in terms of the day-to-day efforts of the authorities. I, fair... I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more okay. that this, this is a uh fairly standard investigative approach to to a matter and and with an interesting twist in that the way it started was completely separate from the actual scheme that's been uncovered here. Right. And what what I think we're witnessing and and um Stephen you know one of the conditions of your participation here obviously you're not um speaking uh on you know firsthand but uh, you know the overview and Tom but we're also seeing the metastasization, if I can use that word, of of this investigation as 
people approached and you will have other cooperators and uh, obviously charges have been filed and, and every person that's been publicly charged, one should assume that there are other people that it's yet to be revealed that are either have been charged or about to be charged. Hmm. And their cooperation and some of the other investigative techniques that flow from that, think of this almost as dominoes falling um, with additional subpoenas, um, surveilled conversations, either electronically or people wearing recorders, um, the review of uh, emails and other uh, correspondence, no doubt, will continue to yield uh, results from this investigation for many, many months uh, to come. So, um, Stephen, there's a famous uh, Warren Buffett quote that when the tides recede, uh, you realize who's been swimming without a bathing suit. <laughs> and um, sometimes it just takes, I'm a big fan of Tom Wolfe and Bonfire of the Vanities, a man of and such, um, and trying to understand how seemingly small events can lead to very, very consequential uh, outcomes. And so as this scandal unfolds, give us a sense, you know, beyond, um, you know, the weak link in the chain with the athletic departments, but um, what the issues that are, you know, yet to be raised, some of the issues that already have started to be raised, and having been at uh, Yale and Brown and Harvard and now the City University System in New York, how um, universities, the types of issues and the types of thinking that is already underway and needs to be underway around the admissions process. So I would say that any group that, like athletics, um, doesn't receive the kind of scrutiny throughout the process, you know, as students are being admitted and after they arrive and so on, needs to think about its processes. Um, so they identified the uh, the weakest link, and I think those fixes are fairly easy um, in the sense that they have to make sure that everyone who comes on campus has authenticated records um, before um, they can be, you know, admitted to campus. And so checking out videos, uh, for, for instance, and making sure they're actual soccer players or swimmers or whatever. Um, and having somebody in the athletics office uh, who's actually going through each of the recruits with the coaches to make sure that, you know, they're doing their due diligence because uh, this is all preventable. I think it never occurred to anyone um, that, you know, this, this would happen. Um, so, but I'm thinking of, you know, other groups like um, alums who get, you know, a second chance. I mean, they get like a third read. Typically, every student applying to an Ivy League school will get two reads of their folder. And then for somebody who's a legacy or who's a possible donor, they get a third read. Um, this is interpreted by people as an advantage, um, and it is if it's getting that kind of scrutiny. But, you know, just because uh, that's on the one side of the ledger. On the other side, you know, they, the university needs to be very careful that, the numbers, the, the credentials being presented by these students are also legitimate and they can, you know, authenticate them because it's another area of vulnerability where there may be some temptation uh, to fudge records and so on in order to get someone across the threshold uh, who would be, you know, a credible candidate 
um, with those, you know, with those numbers, but without them wouldn't be uh, somebody who would ordinarily be admitted. So I think, you know, those are the, the obvious group are, you know, possible, uh, you know, children of donors and also legacies. Um, but there are probably some other areas that I'm not thinking of. Okay. So um, the university admissions process, and I'll draw upon the recent litigation that Harvard's been involved with um, that was brought by um, a, a class of Asian students who felt they had been discriminated against. The university admissions process, um, you know, has always been somewhat opaque. And right. the decision-making process is very, very difficult. It's very hard to, you know, distinguish sometimes between candidates and who should come in and who shouldn't. And I know there are committees and people debate, and they oftentimes, uh, the way the committees are set up, you have um, people who are advocates, people on the committee who are advocates around their pool versus others, and there can be a, you know, a very spirited debate around this. Um, but um, in in some respects, there are aspects of the admissions process, uh, while not transparent, are kind of known. And universities have to raise significant amounts of money above and beyond the tuition dollars in order to maintain their um, their operations and the quality of their education. And so, you know, they're you call it a third read uh, to potential. Um, donors or actual donors or alumni. Uh, we have the athletics. There, there are issues around um, what are referred to as diversity of income, diversity of race, diversity of gender, diversity of um, you know sexual orientation, diversity of uh, where people live. And these cases, you know, continue to come up to the Supreme Court. And if I can interject something, um, which is why I've been trying to understand why um, this particular case has attracted such attention. Clearly, it is about, um, we'll call it, you know, the advantage that money seemed to bring to the table here. Um, it's also about, you know, hypocrisy, I, I think, in terms of some of the values that some people, you know, are proponents about it, and then you see the practice. Uh, it's also reflective of something that I know you have dealt with, which is the extraordinary pressure that children and families feel around the admissions process. And so as you think about, you know, a process that has not historically been transparent, and maybe it shouldn't be. I mean, I'll just interject that view. Um, but... Um, the other issues, um, and you mentioned one in terms of alumni and, and donor, but the other types of issues that may very well come to light as a result of this scandal, whether it's through the government investigation and the review of emails or the review of cooperating witnesses or, you know, the, the interviews and the, the types of documents that may have to be produced by universities around their admissions process. Uh, maybe you can give us a... a you know, a quick tour through some of the points of vulnerability and where, you know, every 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 moment like this is always a learning process and a, an opportunity to do better. But where where does you think universities from an internal standpoint are going to have to focus and, and think if we have the athletic uh, 
uh, department issues and, you know, we'll call it the third hook or fourth hook that uh, certain people get. That's a tough one. I mean, I have to say, having been a part of every admissions process of each of the institutions I've been at, um, they do a very good job, uh, the admissions officers, given whatever the values are of that um, university. And I think that's where there's the greatest variation from one institution to another. It's in what they decide is important to them. So that a certain kind of diversity may be important to this college and less so to that college. Uh, I think, for instance, at Yale, there is much more of a sense of the importance of kind of creating a sense of community with each individual within its residential colleges as compared with Harvard, for instance, which was really looking for the best player in the draft. Um, so, the, you know, at the admissions table, when they're deciding between one student and another, it's oftentimes they're looking at people very similar, have very similar credentials, and then they're making kind of a gut-feeling guess about which one would better serve the interests of the values of, of the institution. Um, so I think that process has a lot of credibility and integrity within institutions. Um, areas of vulnerability, I think, you know, really are wherever they're looking to other institutions to provide um, the credentials and credibility of the students who are applying. Um, and I think, you know, so an obvious one that we saw in this case is uh, people cooperating at the ACT or the SAT um, sites and, you know, changing numbers and things like that. I mean, that's a, you know, those, that's, those are critical pieces of information. Um, and I think other people involved at the high school level who are college counselors um, who often have a lot of influence over which students get preference for, you know, the, the various institutions they apply to. So I think, you know, if you look really hard, you'd be able to find some other areas like this. Um, there aren't many others that really kind of occur to me off the top of my head. So that's a great overview. And if I can, I'll just act as a little bit of a um, curator here. So uh, among the areas, obviously, might be greater security around the SAT testing process. Uh, right. both in terms of where students take the test and how it's um, – who are the proctors, if I can use that term. Uh, another, you know, what, what I'll refer to as a point for ensuring credibility and, and integrity in the process has to reside with the high school counselors who are either confirming various facts to be the case, whether someone's a member of a team or not a member of a team, or they're – you know, they right. actually do know do know how to pole vault, and then the third thing, which which um, is um, was interesting to me, is each university has a slightly different perspective on what they're trying to accomplish in the admissions process right. and how they go about reviewing applications, and you know possibly what may come out of this um, is greater transparency in terms of um, what the admissions office uh, is sort of looking for, the types of criteria that they believe are important, and maybe the, uh, you know, the better messaging uh, to the public uh, mm, around right. this. And that may be um, something that comes out of this investigation. 
And so um, very, very helpful, Stephen, so thank you. Um, sure. Tom, um, over to you because um, this is this investigation feels like it's more at the beginning than at the end, and the real chance of uh, cooperators and such. And as we think about, you know, additional cooperators and, and information coming out of documents and records that have turned over, um, I want to go to something that, um, you know, I keep seeing this also as a common denominator in virtually all, we'll call it white-collar-like uh, criminal cases, uh, which is the, um, the internal communications, the emails, the text messages, and things like that. Maybe you can give us a sense of the audience how important that will be and maybe some of the issues that, you know, clearly can come up there and likely what is being asked of various universities that are being subpoenaed and, um, and some universities that have yet to be subpoenaed, but but may very well find themselves as subjects in this investigation. Right. Well, so starting with the the you know your initial point that this seems like it's at the be beginning or early stages of the investigation versus the end, and and I would agree with that. I think there's a long way to go in uh, in this matter, and it it goes beyond you know. Uh, the 50 that have been uh, um, indicted at this point, but uh, I think uh, even those individuals, there's there's definitely more potential charges against them as this investigation continues. And one of one of the matters that I think has been interesting to see is that it's not just the FBI involved in this investigation; uh, the IRS is very involved in this investigation because they bogus charity was set up by uh, Mr. Singer, and he um, had the payments funneled through there. And then the question, of course, becomes, did these people that were making these payments end up um, taking deductions for, for what they knew were fraudulent, you know, bogus uh, charitable contributions? And so that's a, a potential for additional charges against these individuals. And so I do think you're absolutely correct that there will be people cooperating in this. People, and if they don't have anything to give, I think a lot of these people may be making deals to avoid additional charges being brought against them. And we'll see how that all plays out. But as far as the records and the uh you know, from emails to text messages to what um, is in uh, people's personal accounts as well as the university's um, emails. I think that's going to be absolutely critical, and I do think uh, it's from what I've seen so far, it's extremely interesting that in this case uh, people were much more talkative than, than what you see sometimes in more sophisticated uh, criminal matters in the sense of, you know, uh, hardened criminals that, that are a little more uh, cautious in uh, written communications, whether it be text messages or um, uh, emails. So I do think there's going to be just a treasure trove of uh, evidence in the uh, electronic discovery process. Um, and I do think uh, 
the Bureau. Uh, we'll be looking at universities to see if there were others involved. Um, if there were, uh, um, th there's definitely going to be evidence in, in those emails, and we've seen it already in some of the uh, indictments that have, in the complaints that have been written up. And so I do feel that uh, um, this is going to probably get broader before it uh, it uh, ends here. And I do think uh, other universities, other individuals will get wrapped up into this as, as this thing goes broader. Just building on that, Tom, um, I've, you know, reviewed some of the uh, disclosures around conversations and things like that, and uh, um, invariably, you know, a defense, one can easily imagine a defense for the um, various people who are either under investigation or who have been charged of entrapment. And that, um, you know, while possibly, you know, working with the government, um, some of the conversations got a bit aggressive, the argument will go in terms of putting pressure on people to write checks on behalf of their kids in order to get them in. And uh, also, sort of what I'll refer to as it may have been willful blindness, but uh, no direct evidence concerning some individuals knowing, you know, for sure where this was going. Only that mm -hmm. it was necessary to support, you know, what I'll refer to as uh, getting an application highlighted. Stephen, maybe to your point, you know, getting a third look or a fourth look uh, to getting this in front of certain coaches. And, advocating on behalf of people to potentially, um, you know, working with a student in terms of uh, SAT uh, and related performance. And, um, um, again, I just, my general sense here is there, there's a lot of pattern recognition here in terms of the case. It's, it's a unique case for many people, but there is a pattern here, both in terms of the investigative techniques and also the likely defenses um, that are, um, that are to be raised, and maybe right. we could just get your perspective on that as well. Yeah, I, I have read um, some commentary about uh, um, entrapment and, and uh, you know, aggressive means and, and pressure tactics. Um, I'm, you know, in my opinion, I don't think those are going to hold too much water with most of the individuals involved here. With some, there, there may be... Um, a uh, valid uh, argument there that they could potentially make, and and I think maybe that could help mitigate um, matters for them. I I don't think too many of these uh, will go to trial. I could be wrong. I think there will be a lot of uh, negotiating and, and and deals made for people to cooperate and to uh, mitigate their ultimate uh, charges that are are. Uh, that they uh, end up pleading to, but uh, as far as the the entrapment and, and and you know, I I saw one defense attorney in a article I was reading, indicating that that she felt there was just a broad broad defense of entrapment here, and I I personally don't see that, and maybe that's my law enforcement background coming out, but I. I think that many of these people knew what was happening was wrong. They were making payments to facilitate this. They were making payments through a 
bogus charity that they knew it wasn't for a charity. I think there are a lot of factors here that line up that indicate that that people it doesn't quite pass the smell test that that people could say I was entrapped into doing this. Um, I do think that uh, there's there's very likely enough evidence to indicate they were going into this uh fairly eyes open and understanding that that what they were doing was was not um legal not not uh the standard uh way to get an individual into uh a university especially in the instances where uh individuals didn't even play the sport and in a couple instances uh their schools didn't even have the sport that the individual was uh, being "quote unquote" recruited to uh, enter the college for. So I think I think some of them will have a difficult time making that that type of defense. So very very helpful. Let me take it um, one step um, further. Um, mm-hmm. These cases that are trial will invariably uh, involve. The prosecutorial um, themes of privilege, advantage, breach of trust, the belief that the defendants could buy anything and everyone and buy entrance. And um, we've seen those those types of trials before. And sure, um, white collar individuals and CEOs are put on trial and sort of how they use money, exercise their influence, et cetera, uh, becomes uh, paramount. And I want to uh, give each of you a, a final question. I'll go to you first, Tom. And uh, Stephen, I'll ask you to think about uh, something while we do. But, uh, Tom, you've been both on the investigative side, private side. Um, your extended family has had uh, – children who applied to and been accepted to colleges, and uh, you get a phone call from um, the university, and the, the question is sort of in light of this, of what's going on here, um, we haven't received a subpoena yet. We expect we might. What should we be doing? How should we be thinking about this? How do we get ahead of it? How do we make sure that... Uh, what what is being reported has not and would not occur here. What well, advice are you giving them? Sure, I, and I think I think you know from the standpoint of uh, the, these universities, I don't think they're being looked at in a in a criminal fashion. I think there's wrongdoers within certain universities that have been involved in this. And I do think in some other instances. Um, that have not had the athletic angle to it. They don't even necessarily have insiders in the university. It was more of a the test-taking um, aspect of this scheme that allowed people to gain entrance that probably shouldn't have. So, um, but I do think uh, you know universities can take some steps to uh, whether, whether they're going to be subpoenaed or not. Um, in, in this matter and to look at their policies, look at their procedures, look at what they're doing and what controls are in place. As, as Stephen kind of mentioned earlier in the conversation about what universities have done in the past um, for allowing uh, 
athletic departments to uh, designate certain student athletes or students as student athletes and there hasn't necessarily been a uh, check and balance process and I think they need to probably take a look a look back so to speak at the at what's happened and if there's any anomalies or any issues and and um, potentially look at it, uh, outside counsel to get involved if they do see any red flags pop up and to uh, start, uh, you know, an internal investigation into these matters. Now, um, a lot of universities probably won't see a red flag, but I do think they uh, they still should be doing this review and look back to uh, see what's what they do have in place and look for holes in their processes and, uh, you know, come up with a... Uh, a go forward type of plan to uh to plug those holes and to uh um, put some things in place a compliance program so to speak to uh, to avoid these types of matters from happening in the in the future and that could involve you know beyond policies it can involve training it can involve additional screening for you know both uh um employees at, uh, in the athletic department and, and non-athletic department employees and also, uh, you know, training uh, for any third parties that they may uh, and, and background screens for any third parties they may be involved with from the, um, in, in this area. Yeah, that's a great overview. Let me just uh, interject a second and third order of consequence here, which is mm-hmm. we've seen this from you know, the head of a law firm to other corporate heads uh, who have been implicated in this and and what that means to their institutions. And um, so as um, this is part of the community of investors and people who are acquiring companies, uh, I want to underscore that, you know, various events have occurred in the last year, two years, where um, it was often appropriate to, to, as part of the diligence process, to be asking questions around this. But now that the, these things are out in the open, uh, it becomes even more of an imperative. And that's everything from um, workplace behavior and uh, the types of claims that have arisen and been settled quietly without necessarily litigation subject to confidentiality agreements. So we have seen, um, you know, the instances of going back to high school, college, medical school, and uh, having to understand whether somebody, you know, put blackface on or donned a Ku Klux Klan uniform, Uh, things that you wouldn't expect from certain people, but, you know, it's occurred and now the need to get to the bottom. But now also uh, understanding whether people um, thinking they were wrong believing they were acting in the best interest of their children or whatever, but uh, have been involved in what I refer to making contributions to these types of charities or paying third parties or recruiters or whatever to assist in the application process. And so as uh, our listeners are thinking through the issues that they have to deal with from a legal, commercial, reputational standpoint, these are now, um, we'll call it the Tom Wolf lessons of, what can matter um, in the current uh, uh, environment. And Stephen, um, as you think about because of your position, but if you were asked to advise uh, a university about what they should be doing now in light of 
uh, the revelations, and I'm going to do a slight twist on what Tom said. Uh, I believe the application process requires some kind of student certification that all the facts represented are truthful and accurate. Uh, That's right. Do I remember that? Yeah, correct. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So those things get mailed or electronically communicated across states. So uh, Tom will attest to the fact that uh, there are statutes like mail fraud and wire fraud uh, that potentially are uh, implicated here. Uh, But also, um, to your point about the weak link, and I can speak from my experience around emails, both with clients of Goldman Sachs, some of the situations I'm dealing with now, and even the internal communications with Goldman, that you can imagine a athletic director or a coach uh, talking about, you know, a contribution that just received from a department for 250000 or half a million or whatever it is, um, that that could be a moment to celebrate internally at a university and about a job well done and, you know, running the program great and, you know, people getting in. You can imagine that there are internal communications at universities that may not show um, various people or various values in the in the, in the the best possible light. Let me make this simpler. The president, Stephen, right. the president of the university of a university has called you up and said, Stephen, you've been at all these wonderful schools where you're constantly, I know you're staying current with the headlines and what's being revealed here. As president of the university, what should I be doing to protect this institution? I see. Um, well, first of all, look at all the situations in which uh, there's a, a comparable or similar vulnerability in the admissions process. And the people in the admissions office are in the best possible position to determine what they are. Um, secondly, uh, of course, they're going to look at their processes now, you know, especially around you know, athletic admissions, but they should all be thinking about whether they should be reducing the size of their programs, getting rid of uh, teams, and so on. Um, I, as somebody who's been, you know, advising students for more than 25 years and teaching them, student athletes are wonderful. I've had great experiences with them as students, and, you know, I follow them in their sports and so on. It's, as people, um, they're great. So um, this is not about them. It's about how well can the university or the college really um, have a process where they can scrutinize what's going on um, in their admissions process so that they can be accountable? So how many of these admissions can they really manage and do due diligence with in order to ensure that every single one of them is a valid, um, authenticated admission? For some schools, that could be... We, we have 35 um, we have 35 sports. We need to get it down to 25. Um, it'll just depend on the university and the size of their admissions office. I can tell you these people in admissions work to death. I mean, they're, they're constantly on the road. They're underpaid. They're usually young because you can't do this forever. Um, they're under a lot of strain, and especially since, you know, they, they open an application which, you know, uh, multiply the number of applicants by 10 at every single one of these universities. So that's a um, sort of a, a great overview. Uh, let me just throw something in here. Uh, you have the certification by students that all the information is truthful and accurate. Uh, would it also be helpful to um, 
within the athletic department and others that a similar certification by those people for either sponsoring candidates or making decisions about candidates to also have a similar attestation to the university that, you know, decisions been made on the merits of that influence uh, uh, with things in favor or value provided yeah. or, yeah. Something yeah, I would, I would assume there's something in place now. I don't know. If not, there, I'm sure there will be soon. Um, okay. But I think, you know, one of the, the great things about what's happening is that you know, everyone's going to sit up and pay attention to their own processes, not just the university affected, but everybody in the whole industry is going to have to look at, you know, how much they scrutinize each of these admissions and how much they follow up on the back end. It's, um, you know, a shot across the bow. And a topic for a separate uh, conversation, this is something that uh, Tom and I have shared notes on, um, to commit many of these crimes, it, it, you, you can't commit them on your own. You need a partner. And at the end of the day, um, and I'll leave this to another conversation, and uh, there is a commentary here about parents um, and the pressures and uh, yes. sort of how they view this process because unless they're – these are not kids who write the checks, and generally speaking, you know, there's a, there can be a lot of pressure within these high school environment um, much of which is imposed by either parents or the parents of their colleagues and things like that. There is clearly a commentary um, around how parents think about schools and their children and the admissions process yeah. and what is in the best interest of their kids. And we will circulate what I thought was a great um, piece by Peggy Noonan um, last week on, on this process and some insights that she had. Uh, about uh, universities. Uh, I'll also add with a uh, further editorial note, as Stephen talked about the open admissions process, again, reserved for another conversation, is the college ranking process, um, which has imposed, you know, additional pressures on not just um, student applicants and their families, but obviously the universities themselves, the administrators to um, win the race of most selective um, mm -hmm. universities, so um, encouraging a great deal of applications, some of which, quite frankly, um, you know, will be not carefully reviewed because of various, you know, test and grade factors. But the notion that um, the university gets to claim the title of most selective or among the ten most selective because they actually uh, admit 5% of all the applications that come in and that are writing a check for 75 or 100 bucks or 150 dollars so I'll reserve that commentary Steve uh, for another conversation with you sure um, as well because I know you have given a great deal of thought to that issue so I want to thank both of you very much for a very very thoughtful conversation uh, some great insights food for thought and uh, with the request that as this investigation continues more facts come to light um, and possibly insights and revelations about uh, the system, uh, we can reconvene. So thank you both very, very much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, 
the Daily Risk Book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.